0: The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. Now presenting the documentary feature, American Symphony. From Academy Award nominee Matthew Heineman. both IndieWire and Variety have named it one of the best documentaries of the year. The Hollywood Reporter says American Symphony is a moving love story,
1: a celebration of art, resilience, and the mutability of the human spirit.
0: American Symphony is available now on Netflix. you have a brief logline of the film?
1: I don't really, but I can make one up, which is uh, 32 Sounds is a essay about sound built around 32 specific recordings of things. It's all about sound, but it also uses sound to be a movie about time and time passing and ephemerality and the present moment.
0: Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. Today we're talking to Sam Green, the director of 32 Sounds. 32 Sounds had its world premiere at the 2022 Sundance Film Festival, where it was supposed to be a live documentary, but due to the vagaries of the pandemic that year, it ended up being streamed to Sundance audiences watching at home, including myself. The film has since been screened around the world in no fewer than four different versions and has recently been shortlisted for the Oscar for Best Documentary Feature. So what are these different versions? Well, there's a theatrical version with the 7.1 surround sound mix, a live version complete with headphones for each audience member featuring live narration by Sam Green and live original music by J.D. Sampson, there's a theatrical headphone experience, And finally, there's a version designed for a completely immersive, at-home experience. Director Sam Green received an Academy Award nomination for his 2002 documentary, The Weather Underground. In the years since, Sam basically reinvented himself by creating virtually a new documentary form, the so-called live documentary. He discusses this in the pod, so I'm not going to go into it here. But I'll just say, I met Sam over 30 years ago, when he was making The Weather Underground, and since then, I've been really fortunate to see several of his live documentaries, and they're always a delight for the senses. It makes perfect sense, given his collaborations with such musical luminaries as the Kronos Quartet, Yola Tango, and J.D. Sampson, among others, that he would have eventually made a film about sound itself. And now, thankfully, he has. I urge you to seek out any of the versions of 32 Sounds. It's a thoroughly pleasurable and engaging visual and aural experience. Not to be missed. As usual, if you like this interview, please follow us and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell a friend. Also, please follow us on Instagram, at Pod and on Twitter, also at Pod. And now, my conversation with Sam Green, the director of 32 Sounds. Sam Green, welcome to Top Docs.
1: Thank you, Ken. It's great to be here talking with you.
0: And it's great to talk to you, Sam. We go way back, but we've never had the opportunity to talk about one of your films, oddly. So here we go. Awesome. 32 Sounds is, I would say, different from the other shortlisted documentaries in one very specific way, because I think it was originally designed to be performed as a live documentary and it also exists in this form that I saw it, which is as a film that people can watch without the live performance aspect. First of all, for folks who are not familiar with the Sam Green canon of live documentary, can you explain what is a live documentary?
1: Yeah, this is a form I sort of stumbled upon, I think, 12 years ago. The curse of it is that it's always really hard to get people to understand what it is. But I call it live documentary. And it's sort of all the elements of a film, but it just happens live. A movie plays on the screen. I am on the stage narrating in person. And a musical group is performing the score live. So I made a Live documentary about Buckminster Fuller, the great inventor and designer and futurist Buckminster Fuller. I narrate it and the band Yola Tango does the score. The difference between this kind of thing and a regular movie is it's not something you can stream on Netflix or Hulu or rent from the video store. You know, it only happens live when we come to your town and do a performance of this or screening, whatever you want to call it. Like I said, I sort of backed into this form, but I really love it, and I've been intrigued by it, and I've kept coming back to it because it's all the elements of cinema, but at their highest power in a way, you know, like huge image on the screen, an ocean of sound that will really envelop you, all that, and that's in the context of how people watch movies now, sometimes on their phones, sometimes on their laptops while doing Facebook. It's a different kind of cinematic experience, one I really liked. So 32 Sounds started off as that. I would narrate it in person, and J.D. Sampson did the soundtrack live, and everybody in the audience wore headphones. we travel around with 500 sets of headphones. So for a long time, I thought that was the only way the film could exist.
0: And then you turned it into, quote-unquote, a regular film, a non-live yeah. version. Yeah, what was that process like?
1: Film Forum in New York got in touch with me, Mike Maggiore, and said, oh, we send me a, I want to check it out. So I sent him a link. You know, I'd sort of made a version of it that was the recorded voice over the recorded music and the images. I sent it to him and they wanted to show it. So I was kind of like, wow, what? how do I do this? Because it had been mixed for headphones. There's a lot of spatial stuff in it. We use binaural and ambisonic microphones. It doesn't really work through regular speakers. You don't get that spatial quality. I got in touch with Mark Mangini, the sound designer I worked with, who's a big Hollywood sound designer. He did Dune. To his credit, he did Dune, 32 Sounds, then Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles.
0: (laughs) I believe you're the only one of those three that made the Oscar documentary shortlist.
1: Well, Dune won an Oscar. There was that, but not in documentary. I asked Mark, I said, Mark, could we ever make this work for speakers? And he thought about it and he said, yeah, it will take a lot of work. So we had to really rework the sound mix and redo stuff. And it's it's a super nerdy, complicated sound undertaking, but we did it and it works. It's a little different. You don't quite get the same spatial quality, but a lot of the mix is a lot bigger. So it works best in... I never knew this stuff before, but like a 7.1 surround sound environment, it can be really striking.
0: Well, it really does work. And I would also say, even though I've not had a chance to see this as a live documentary, I've seen a number of your other live documentaries in Toronto and Los Angeles. And for anybody who has the chance, I highly, highly recommend you come to one of these performances they're amazing. They're a lot of fun. They're mind-expanding, and it, it's a great way for people who are documentary geeks like myself, who don't go out that often to live shows, to to do that.
1: Thanks for saying all that, Ken. I sh- I should pay you a uh,
0: royalty. <laughs> we'll we'll talk about that later. But now I want to get back to JD. How did yeah. the the collaboration with JD Sampson? come about in relation to this film? And why, why did you think you and JD would be a good fit for this project?
1: I made a piece for the Whitney Biennial in 2019. And it was a live cinema piece, a portrait of a guy named Jim Ferrat, who's like an old timer, a film critic, a kind of zealot type of figure. He's been around for a million years. I wanted somebody to do live music for it. And Matt Wolf was the person who curated the film part of the Whitney Biennial. And he suggested J.D., who was a friend of his. I was a fan of J.D.'s music, but we'd never met. We met up, and I asked if J.D. would do the, the music for this Jim Ferrat piece. She said, sure. We did it, and it was super fun. We had a great time. I love J.D.'s music, and we worked well together. So after that, I was, knew I was starting this thing about sound, and I asked if she'd be up for it which is funny because now we're doing Q&As and this question will come up and JD will be like, five years ago, Sam asked me. And I think if JD knew five years later, she'd still be working. I don't know if she would have said yes. Every musician or composer has a sort of emotional palette to their work. And music is one of these funny things, either it resonates with you or it doesn't. And JD's music really does. They're just melodic elements that really get me. Sometimes JD would make sketches for songs for the movie and I just I'd listen to them over and over again just for pleasure you know or even some word that's stronger than pleasure some kind of like deep appreciation or I don't know and also JD's really smart about sound and a fun person to collaborate with and amuse so JD's in the movie you know I like filming JD. JD's a great performer great on camera so I just it was I felt super lucky to be working together.
0: Yeah. And I think that, as you say in the film, it can be tricky to figure out how to use music in a film about sound. And I love that. First of all, I love the transparency around that. Uh But also you manage to figure out how to do it. So there are moments when J.D.'s music is more center stage, moments when I wouldn't say it's in the background, but it's supportive of other elements of the film. And then there are moments when you see J.D. on camera.
1: That's tricky, though, because, like, in the end credits, for example, in a normal movie, you'd really blast the music, and the music would be the main element. And in the end credits of 32 Sounds, there's sounds of crickets in the night, trees and bugs and crickets. And with this, I, I wanted that to... To not be secondary but to also be center stage so that mix is not typical the music sort of sits right next to the cricket sounds and they both do their work independently and hopefully neither steps on the other which is a real delicate mixing challenge
0: speaking of crickets i believe you know the end credits the sound of crickets really evolves out of the last scene in the movie which is one of the scenes with the amazing composer, Anaya Lockwood, who's the central character, maybe the central character in the whole movie. You wrote an essay for a publication called Pioneer Works about Anaya and your collaboration, in which you said, I've made many documentary films over the years, and each one has changed me in some way, but none as much as the film I just recently finished called 32 Sounds. What changed you about this film? Why Why is it the film that really changed you?
1: Well, that's a great question, Ken. I think making films, for me at least, I never sit down with a list of five possible topics and what could I get funded for, you know, and think about things strategically. My films always come out of a, an emotional impulse, a sort of murky mysterious obsession with something. I'm curious, and I'm always looking into things, and most of the time, that just comes and goes. Like, the past couple days, I've been really interested in people who have walked all around the world. There's a number of people who have done this over the years, and it's just a real interesting thing to me, you know? So that will probably come and go. But sometimes things really stick, and I started to get interested in sound and I wasn't quite sure it was an intellectual interest in sound, but there was something more to it than that. But when I make a film, usually you don't know what that is. Early on, I, I came across Anaya Lockwood. I, I read a reference to her in a book, and I just started Googling her. I'd never heard of her before. She's from New Zealand. She's a composer. She's in her 80s, real avant-garde person. I just started listening to her work online and reading about her, and I just was very taken I wrote her an email out of the blue. I found her website. I wrote her an email and said, hi, I'm interested in sound. Could I talk to you sometime? And she said, sure, call me this afternoon. It was right in the beginning of the pandemic. So everybody was at home. So I called her and we had this great conversation. She's very sunny and delightful, but also really smart about sound. And also i felt very wise about the world and about using sound in a way to navigate and make sense of the world, to make sense of life and to make sense of grief and loss. And those things really changed me, you know, not in some deliberate way where I said, I'm going to pay more attention to sound, but just there's certain people I'm sure you've had this experience or people listening have had this experience where you come across people and spend time with them and talk and you feel some of what they are has gotten inside of you. That's my experience with the I'm I'm a different person. I think about sound differently. I think about my place in the world differently, and I think about how to navigate the world differently.
0: One of the joys of this film is watching people listen to sounds, and and there's some great shots of Aenea just listening and smiling, and her mouth agape, and uh, it's very cinematic, oddly. I love watching people
1: listen, because they're sort of half there, and they're half not. They're half somewhere else. There's a lack of self-consciousness when you're listening. You're not thinking about the person filming you. So people are sort of naked in a strange way. The last film I made about the Kronos Quartet, I had a whole section of people listening, and I really have always been interested in that.
0: I wanted to delve just a bit deeper into your creative process because I think when you go to a, one of your live documentaries or watch this film, wherever you may see it, There are inputs that give you a glimpse into your process. And yet, I'm sure there's so much more to it than what we see. How do you take all these different bits of things, whether it's book research or looking into found footage or using your own outtakes from other films as Mm -hmm. source material, how do you kind of figure out where to go and then how to keep these things straight, and then yeah. how to calibrate them in terms of which things are going to stick and which things are not.
1: Well, this movie was different than any movie I've made before because all the movies I'd made before were movies that sort of had a structure came out of the subject. I made a movie about the Kronos Quartet. It's a portrait of them. So it's sort of a chronological portrait and a story of the quartet, you know, or Buckminster Fuller, same thing. It's sort of a chronological portrait of this fascinating guy. Weather Underground, same thing. I made a movie about the Guinness Book of Records that was sort of like a random poem of records that interested me. So that in some ways is this. But this was the first movie I made where it really was, there's no inherent structure to it whatsoever. Also, when I started, I just thought, I'm going to make a documentary about sound. It was like jumping off a bank into a river and not know where you're going, which was new to me and scary. I'm a controlling person, so I've always been comfortable. I don't make verite films where you just see what happens. I've always made films where you know where it's going to end up. So this was weird and a big challenge for me. But I think part of what gives the film its strength is that. and. I've always been really suspicious when you hear artists or people talking about like the sculpture just came out of the rock or that novel just poured out of me. I wasn't even doing anything. I was, you know, I've always been like, no way, because that's never been my experience. But this certainly was difficult and the hardest movie I've ever made, but it did come out of the material. In some ways, it, it suggested itself more than I imposed my vision onto the material, which was strange.
0: I want to talk about a few sequences in the film. There's one sequence in the film about fog and you had made an earlier film about fog shot in San Francisco. And in this sequence, you talk about someone you interviewed named Harold Gilliam, who was a path-breaking environmental journalist and writer. You include a recording from your conversation with him in which he just. describes foghorns and how they're kind of a reminder of the interconnectedness of all things. Yeah. And the reason I bring up this sequence is because you used the word random earlier. And rather randomly, I have a personal connection to Harold Gilliam because he and his wife, Anne, were friends of my parents.
1: That's amazing.
0: And so I'm watching your film and suddenly there's Harold Gilliam. And I'm like, oh, holy so you shit. Knew,
1: you knew him
0: when you were like a kid or? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. They would occasionally get together and I would hear about what they were up to in their life. I bring this up because in the film, you have someone else talking about this idea of ghost voices. Can you explain, first of all, what ghost voices is?
1: Yeah. It's a guy named Fred Moten, who I interviewed. He's a poet and a kind of cultural theorist, really wonderful writer, fascinating guy, and I did a long interview with him, and the part that really stuck out that I put in the film is a short monologue he does about how many of his most intense sonic memories or sonic sort of experiences are what he calls ghost voices, people who he has loved who are gone, and he can almost remember their voices the way they sound. Not quite but almost. And so you live with these voices that are kind of ghost voices. And the older that you get, the more you have. And that rings true to me. And I think many people. So it's just an interesting concept. I've never heard that or thought that. But once somebody says it, you're like, yes, that is a a phenomenon. But why did it resonate with you?
0: Well, for me, Harold Gilliam became a ghost voice. And then by seeing him in the film and just having his name evoked, it brought back all these other memories and all these other ghost voices. So, you know, my parents are deceased. So their ghost voices yeah. came back to me. So, you know, I think there's something about your work in total and in certainly this film in particular in which there is this relationship between randomness and interconnectedness. So for me, that's just a random connection. But I think for someone else watching your film or going to one of the performances, they're going to have a personal connection to some other part of the movie or some other fragment. So I think one of the brilliant things about your work is that it does connect on a one to one level with people, but in unique ways. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious, as you've been touring with this film, have you heard about people's sort of individual stories about things that really resonated with them?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's odd and I, I don't quite understand it. I've made a bunch of movies, and I've never made a movie that gets the kind of emotional response of this one. Like I said, I don't quite have some ideas what that is about, but I'm not quite sure. One of the things I think is that sound is very personal. I did a call-in show with Mark Mangini, the sound designer. It was the KQED forum show, which is like their midday kind of call-in news talk show. They opened the phone lines to people to call... And talk about sounds that were special to them. And I got to say, it was fantastic. People had the greatest sounds and talked in such funny and poignant ways about them. It was amazing. I was really taken with that. Because often calling is just people are weird and crazy. But this was just humanity at its best. And it was really that, that sound touches people deeply, evokes Memories in a powerful way, and so everybody has their own internal sonic landscape, and all of that is very deep. I'll think one other thing, somebody said to me, "Wow, it's a covid movie thirty two sounds." And at first, I was like, "Ugh, no way. But the truth is it was made entirely during Covid. And I think there is a lot of that experience in the film. And the truth is we all went through this incredibly traumatic, often like, painful for many people very deep dark scary experience and then we just went boop. we're totally back to normal it's in the past that's probably healthy but i think you know and after i think world war one or even the civil war maybe people just at first just went forward and left the past in the past and it was only several years later that people started putting up monuments and processing it and i do think that We're all carrying around with us still a lot of feelings, and they're just there, and we don't talk about it. There's no real opportunities to express them, and in a way, sound is good because it sneaks up on people, and I think to some extent or maybe in some way, the movie allows people to feel things that's just there in a sort of surprising way. I don't know if that's true, but it's something I've thought.
0: I would also say that your voice, by which I mean your actual voice that we're hearing here, as it comes through in the narration and commentary in the film, is something that I find evokes emotion in me. You have a unique voice, I think. It's a fantastic voice for this kind of work for these films. And the cadence and the pauses are really wonderful and, and also really relatable. I feel like You're not talking down to us. You're talking right at our level. Mm. How do you go about writing the narration, recording it? What is that process like for you?
1: When I started making films, narration was the worst. You did everything possible to avoid using narration because narration had been the voice of God, 50s, 60s, like terrible narration. So I was always dead set against it. And then when I made the first live cinema piece I made, called Utopian Four Movements in 2010, I realized I had to write, you know, I I was going to make something where I would talk. And I had to write that. And I started to listen to certain things. I was really taken with Adam Curtis, a British filmmaker. And at that time, he just made something called The Power of Nightmares, which was a three-part series for the BBC. And his writing is amazingly good, really good. And I realized, wow, most voiceovers terrible because it's poorly written good voiceover even his his voice is like the schlubby british guy you know he doesn't have a great voice but the writing is good so that made me interested and made me realize like writing for voiceover is really challenging you can just it can be so stripped down and especially writing for talking in person it can be even more stripped down because you can communicate a lot with your gesture your face it's like a haiku you know I'm not like a performer, I'm not an actor, all I can do is me. So I kind of write that way and I'm just like, honestly, this sounds might sound silly, but I'm just a person from Michigan, you know, like a nice person who is pretty straightforward. So that's the voice that I'm using, it's really just me. But I don't know, I've learned so much about writing for voiceover and I've come to realize if I like saying something, If it's fun to say, it's well-written. And there's certain lines where I'm always like, God, I don't like that line. I don't like saying that. Then you realize, oh, it's not written right. So over time, I sharpen the writing by saying it over and over again, which is a big help.
0: So you're from Michigan, and that raises the family aspect of this film. Your family does come into this film to some extent in a sequence in which answering machine messages are played. And these are tapes you've saved over the years in a box in the closet. And yes, I do have such a, such a <laughs> closet myself. More than one box in it, unfortunately. I but I think there is something unique about these answering machine messages from the era of answering machine messages, pre-voicemail, post the, obviously, the invention of answering machines. How did you go about choosing the ones that you chose? It's so funny. Because it's a really interesting selection.
1: There's a part in the film where it says, you know, I was talking to a friend and complaining that I didn't know where the film was going. And she said, you know where it's going. It's all heading towards you playing some of those old tapes. And that was actually my partner, Kat, who said that. And it's pretty much a verbatim account of our conversation. It really happened exactly like that. I was complaining I don't know where this movie's going, and she said exactly that. So I I sort of was like, oh, God, you're right. And then I worked with the great editor Nels Bangerter. Nels was really, yes, that's what we need to do and get me some of those voicemail messages, you know? And I was like, oh, God, I just kept putting it off. And I actually have on my computer a folder called voicemail messages, and it's hundreds of files that are unlabeled. But what I would do at some point, I don't even remember doing this, is record from an answering machine onto either a computer or another tape or something, like 15 messages in a row. I thought to myself, I do not want to go through all these files looking for, you know, comparing. It would just, yeah, I don't want to hear all those voices. Not that I don't love those voices, but I don't want to ruin the magic of them by going through them. So I said, Nels, I'm just going to give you the first file. And it was all those messages that are in the film which is kind of weird it was like perfect it's harold gilliam all these people were gone harold gilliam's gone he left me this funny message i had forgotten about it you know we'd made an appointment to hang out and he was confirming it and he says the date and you know he's charming in his own way and then nahonda who's a character in the film she left me some message from cuba just saying she loved me and there was a funny one from my dad which i always think is really funny. I love that one. It's hilarious. I'm always deeply pleased when audiences laugh. It's a message from my dad that I'd completely forgotten about calling me to see if I was interested in getting a a burial plot. And I was probably in my thirties, not thinking about that at all, but my dad was very matter of fact and not sentimental in the least. He was being sensible and I don't have a burial plot. I'm sure I'd said no or didn't reply. But I think that's really funny because my dad's gone, and so his voice from the other side. And then there was something from my brother, which seemed
0: important. I still haven't listened to the rest of all those. It's interesting. The one from your brother seems to be his outgoing message. Yeah, I didn't want to... I had recorded that
1: after he died, and I didn't want to... That was the one where all the other ones, I'm happy to hear all those voices, you know. When people die when they're old, there's a certain way in which it's natural. And Harold Gilliam died in his 90s. No tragedy there. It's no, He was taken before his time. It's fine. You can hear his message. And my brother, you know, was 40 years old and took his own life. And I'm still heartbroken about that. And hearing his voice
0: is too much. It really seems like he... It seems like it's played just right in the film, Mm. just hearing him give that outgoing message. Mm. That's enough. It's his kind of statement to the world that we all make when we leave those messages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of my favorite scenes in the movie is, it's actually two scenes back to back. It features the scientist, Edgar Schwery. He's a, a rocket scientist, among other things. An extraordinary man, clearly. In the one scene, speaking of listening to to messages, he listens to a recording that he made when he was 11 years old. And this is a recording he made to his future self. So a recording to be played when you're older. After 2000, he said after the year
1: 2000.
0: Yeah, the tape basically got lost and then kind of rediscovered. He plays it and it's a very emotional scene. And then the next scene... Is him playing with, is it his son? Yeah, his son. His son in the backyard. And there's something about those two scenes back to back. And I can't quite put my finger on it, but the, the two scenes really resonate incredibly well. And I guess the obvious thing is in the previous scene, we're hearing him as a boy and then In the next scene, he's playing with his son. So it's sort of the cycle repeating itself. And his own son is essentially a stand-in for him as a young boy, not to be reductive, but it's just magical. But you had mentioned earlier, you know, you don't do really verite is not your typical mode of working. But it got me thinking when I saw that scene in the backyard, did you plan to shoot that? Was it a happy accident? Tell us how that came about.
1: It's funny because... One of the things I love about documentaries, you film things and you don't know how they'll... It's often surprising how they come together, you know, when you use them. So I filmed an interview with Edgar. I filmed him talking about a lot of things. I filmed him listening to the tape, all in his study. I actually thought it was a terrible interview. I was really despondent about it. And then I wanted to film... You know, he has that dummy head microphone. It's a binaural microphone. So I wanted to film something in his yard that would be spatial you know and so i was trying to figure out i couldn't just ask him to run around so i I knew his son was there i said can we get your son out here and just chase him around or something that would make noise that would move around so he did it but i didn't ever think of it as with any kind of emotional charge you know like oh this can work with the tape of himself that it can be this sort of cycle of life thing that's just kind of a happy accident You put two things together and realize, oh, they talk to each other in this way I'd never anticipated.
0: Scientists, science, and invention play a big role, I think, in pretty much all your films or most of them. In this film, you're alluding to Newtonian physics, quantum physics. You're someone whose films, whose art really does seem driven by a strong sense of curiosity about the world and the people in it. Can you talk about how science, scientists, inventors inspire your work?
1: Yeah, it's funny because there's so much dry and boring science stuff out there. I hate to say it. It's funny because 32 Sounds got nominated for, I think, the Critics' Choice Award, like, Best Science Documentary. And I was kind of like, what? I don't make science documentaries, which I feel like I don't. But if you think about science documentary in an expansive sense, that's wonderful. That's amazing. There's so much potential to that form. For me, at least, getting over my preconceptions about what a science documentary can be and is and all the negative connotations about that is great because then you're like, oh, this is about inquiry, about trying to understand our experience of the world. I'm on board. I'm all for that. So i kind of excited in a way, and the movie I'm making about trees is probably much more within, the, clearly within that realm, a science documentary. And so I'm sort of less skittish about that term and that kind of filmmaking, but still I feel like all my movies and my interest in movies is about emotional things, emotional impulses. That's really what guides me. Edgar's tape from his 11-year-old self is much more meaningful to me than his descriptions of what an ambisonic and a binaural mic is, or even his description of the quantum physics behind spatial sound. I think it's balancing those two things, because if you're all emotion, you're sort of, what's the point? But if you're all science, like, what's the point of that? I think trying to find a, a way to combine those and get the most of both is, for me, the great challenge.
0: Yeah. And I think it speaks to your process again, because time and time again, you come at things maybe head on, maybe the more obvious thing. He's a scientist. He has knowledge. I want to ask him about that and get that knowledge out and translate it to the audience. And then time and time again, it's things that you see around that thing, the ostensible reason for the interview fades away as you learn about this other thing and it gives us as the audience this whole sense that the world is such a random complex place that often it's the thing just on the edge of what we thought we were interested in or should know about. It's that thing on the fringe that's really the heart and center of it and that's where the emotion is located.
1: I agree with that. And one of the reasons I love documentary is that I never could think of any stuff. The real things in the films I've made that are striking or profound, I could never think that up. The world is so much more interesting than my imagination, I think. I'm always surprised. I always end up making a movie that's different than what I thought. You say, I'm making a movie about this. And the world says, you're making a movie about this slightly different thing. And that's great. That is one of my favorite things in the whole world. I love that. Edgar and his 11-year-old self-tape is a perfect example of that. If you put that in a fiction movie, it'd be corny. It'd be totally ridiculous. People would be like, oh man, that's too on the nose. But it's real. It really happened. And it's remarkable. It's amazing. And I never would have been able to dream up that idea. So I love the world for that.
0: You have a Quote from the sound designer, Randy Tom, sound is a second-class citizen in our consciousness, but it has a secret weapon, stealth. And then he says, it works on us as if by magic. Yeah. It's a great quote, and I would just close our interview by saying, your films, I think, also work on us as if by magic. So I just want to thank you, Sam, for not just 32 Sounds, which is delightful, And really emotionally packs quite a powerful punch, but really all your work experimenting with this whole world of live documentaries, too, which I I love and, again, urge people to check out when they can.
1: Thank you so much, Ken. I appreciate those kind words, and I appreciate you watching and close watching, and it's a pleasure talking with you.
0: It's great talking with you, Sam. Talk to you soon again, I hope. Happy New Year. You too. Happy New Year. Do you have a hidden gem, a documentary that you've seen in the past that you think maybe hasn't gotten the attention it deserves?
1: The first thing that comes to mind is I got turned on to documentary. I was in journalism school a million years ago in California. I I randomly took a class on documentary. My friend said, I hear the documentary class is really easy, do you want to sign up for it? I said, sure. I was going to be a newspaper reporter. So I took this class and it was taught by a guy named Marlon Riggs, who was a great documentary filmmaker. He had actually gone to the UC Berkeley Journalism School himself and made films in the late 80s and early 90s that at the time were very celebrated. And his most famous or controversial work is a film called Tongues Untied, which is a fantastic film. And it's not under-recognized in a way because many people know it and it certainly was celebrated in its time. But I think these days it's less well-known and younger people probably don't know about Marlon Riggs or don't know about this film. So I would say it's an odd choice in a way because not quite exactly what you're looking for. But I do think Tongues Untied is a, a film that more people should know about, more people should see it as an incredibly brave film, but also a incredibly wonderful creative stylistic film it was a film like no other and it sort of created a mold for many films that came after so tongues
0: untied top docs is a production of Willy media this episode was produced by ken jacobson and mike merrill and edited by mike